0: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
2: Well, hello, hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James. Today on the podcast, it's another episode where I'm out of my depth, where I'm talking to these hugely famous and popular people and intelligent people from all around the world, and I've got no bloody idea. We are joined by Peter Singer today. I reached out to Peter to come on the podcast again. He was on the podcast last year. And the reason why was to just to talk a little bit about ethics because there was a bit of chatter in the Facebook group some time ago, and it got into this debate which kind of boiled down to, is owning an investment property ethical? So, I thought, let's get Peter Singer back on and have a chat. Uh, so, we talk to Peter about his his new book. We talk about his tour uh, and we answer your listener questions. And then I ask what he does with his own investing. So, that will be a good one. You're in for a treat. And again, apologies. Give me grace. I'm so out of my depth. I'm just a bogan from the Central Coast who's got no bloody idea and if you are new to the podcast world and this is your first episode, thanks for listening. I know you've got a choice and I really appreciate you choosing us to have a listen to. And if you've been a listener for some time, also thanks for sticking around. We've got other podcasts. We've got My Millennial Health, uh, Chloe and Jess. They just talk all about health and wellness, all the good stuff. Uh, sleep, gut health, nutrition, work-life balance, all the stuff you need to be the best version of you. Shell and M do My Millennial Career. So, if you want to excel in your career, if you want to take your career to the next level and be encouraged, you can check that out. Another podcast that's not part of the My Millennial Family, but we, we do it, it's called Gen Z Money. Uh, so, if you're under kind of 24 years old and you want some... Uh, further encouragement around your money. Azaria Bell is the host of Gen Z Money, so you can check that out wherever you're listening to this podcast. All right, let's have a listen to me make a fool of myself. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. G'day, Peter. How are you? G'day, Glenn. I'm doing well. You're back on uh, Aussie turf.
1: Um, I certainly am. What's it been like in the States at the moment? Uh, I haven't been there for a while now, so um, but you know from what my friends are saying, things are a little better than they used to be, but uh, they're certainly still quite far from normal, and they're all worried with uh, the new contagious viruses around, and uh, now this problem with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, similar problem to what we have with AstraZeneca, so um, that's putting some people off getting vaccinated. So. We're not not out of the woods yet over there.
2: No, not at all. Now, if you are new to the podcast, after this episode, you might want to go back and have a listen to episode 305, where I I interviewed Peter about the life you can save and effective altruism. But today, I want to have a chat with Peter about ethics in general, investing, investing, And we'll see where it takes us. We've got a heap of listener questions. Peter, I want to talk to you about your new book. But before we do that, you did plan to have a speaking tour last year, but COVID got in the way of that. Uh, You are touring in August, Australia and New Zealand. Can you tell us a little bit about the tour? Uh,
1: Yes. Um, It's a tour being organised by a company called Think Inc. Um, I'm going to Auckland, Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, I'll be speaking in each of those cities. And uh, the purpose of the tour, uh, it's called An Evening with Peter Singer. I'll be talking about a variety of issues, but the overriding purpose is to uh, get people to think about global poverty, uh, what we can do about it as citizens of a reasonably affluent country, and uh, to actually raise money for the life you can save uh, Australia, which is An organization that I founded, it's actually a US-based organization, but it has an Australian um, uh, branch or chapter, uh, uh, to promote the most effective charities helping people in extreme poverty. Um, So people want to find out more about the speaking tour, they can go to Think Inc.'s website or uh, you can have a look at thelifeyoucansave.org.au and find out more uh, about the tour and about the organisation that is uh, it's in aid of.
2: Yeah, wonderful. And uh, if you are going to join us in Sydney, look out for me because I've certainly got my tickets ready for last year, but they carry over if you've already got your uh, tickets from last year. Now, your new book, The Golden Ass, I've got a couple of questions Um, for you, because I think it sounds pretty wild. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of the oldest novels that you've re-edited.
1: That's correct. Um, It may well be the the oldest surviving novel we have, which surprised me when I uh, first heard about it, because when I was in school, I was told that uh, maybe Gulliver's Travels was the oldest novel. And then I realised that was a bit of a kind of Anglo- perspective, and uh, Don Quixote was uh, at least 100 years earlier than that, um, and that's certainly a novel. Um, And then other people say, well, that's still a Eurocentric perspective, because what about The Tale of Genji, which is a a story about a court in Japan, um, written, I think, in the 11th century, so that's a lot older still but um this is written um in the roman period in fact at the heyday of the roman empire in the second century of the current era so it's um 1800 years old um and It depends a little what you count as a novel, of course. You could see uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey as novels, but they were really more like sagas chronicling what was believed to be history. Um, uh, And this is really a novel in the sense of uh, it's a fantastic tale about a man who dabbles in magic and uh, gets turned into a donkey and his adventures as a donkey uh, and, uh, you know, how he eventually emerges from that to tell the story Um, and it's it's funny um it's pretty bawdy there's some uh, erotic passages uh in it both before he's a donkey and after he's a donkey um uh, and uh you know it's it's really good fun to read but the the problem with the original, and I think maybe this is a reason why people hadn't thought of it as a novel. I hadn't read it much, is um, there's a lot of uh, stories embedded in it. So so you know, donkeys have big ears, and they hear a lot of things. And this donkey hears people telling stories and retell some of these stories, which have nothing to do with the main story of the the adventures of the man who gets turned into a donkey. Uh, So it kind of continually gets interrupted and the thread of the narrative gets lost. And I thought, what about if you pruned away these um, digressions and uh, just had the main narrative? And that makes it relatively short. It's a thirty, just between 35 and 40,000 words um, makes it a really good read, I think. Um, and the other thing that attracted it to me, of course, is that um, it's very empathetic about the sufferings of a donkey. So you learn a lot about what a donkey would go through in uh, the second century, uh, in the Roman period, which was not particularly kind to animals. We, we all know about the Roman games in the Colosseum. But it's told very well, um, and I think it gets us to think about animals and uh, presumably got people in those times to think about animals too. So it's pretty remarkably uh, advanced, I would say, in its attitude to animals uh, for the era in which it was written.
2: When you uh, went back into the book... Did you learn anything or take new perspective from it that you might not have picked up, um, you know, years earlier?
1: Oh, certainly. I think um, there are many things that you can get from it. Uh, One is the uh, picture that you get of Roman life or life in the Roman Empire at at that time, Um, and to some extent, the, the similarities in the attitudes to animals that most people had. So for example, this this uh, donkey gets sold in various uh, places and, and at one point is bought by somebody who's operating a mill, so um, a mill for grinding corn into flour. And and the donkey is, is simply like a machine. The donkey is is harnessed to the millstone and has to walk around in circles with, with blinkers on. Um, uh all day long and uh essentially the 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 donkey is being worked to death and and the donkey reports on the other donkeys and horses that are there that are more or less worn out and uh they're living in semi-darkness they're just fed enough to keep them going so it's an attitude of you know animals just as as machines to work for us uh and it's interesting that that was there then, and to some extent that's there now in, in modern factory farming. That you know we, in fact, I have a quote in my book Animal Liberation which says, you know, think of the hen as uh, just a machine to produce eggs, and you know, the, the 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 profits that you make are what you get from the eggs less the costs of the fuel, which is the f- the food that you have to feed the hen and the maintenance, um, mm. and uh, so that's an attitude to animals that goes back at least 2,000 years, maybe more, that we can see, we recognise in the work animals of the Roman Empire and we recognise in the factory farms we have today. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I,
2: like, with the book, there's there's themes of, uh, and these are the things that I wrote down, sex, love, laughter, pranks, drunkenness, uh, there's a heap of metaphors, there's death, there's witchcraft, uh you know, it covers everything. In reading the book and looking at humanity now, there hasn't been that much of a deviation as in like we we might not see um, public lynching of witches anymore, uh, but all those other themes are quite central to humanity right now. Do you find in reading this book and your reflections of the, the work that you do that humanity has moved um far for the better
1: yeah that's a very good question and I think one of the things you do recognize because uh, the author uh, Apuleius uh, clearly had a an eye for human nature and for human foibles um, and so some of these the stories um, that some of the ones that are still in the book are um, are about human nature not really having changed um there's you know tales about uh, adultery and uh, ch- cheating of various kinds uh and people trying to advance their own interests unscrupulously uh, and of course you know the the media are full of some similar stories today so in some of those basics i think human nature has not changed and i i do have an essay at uh at the end of the book after the the novel um talking about that and asking the question specifically with regard to our treatment of animals are we better than the romans were and you know as you say with with witches not being uh, lynched or burned, um we could say well we don't have spectacles of animals being slaughtered and tortured uh which is not quite right because we do have at least some countries have bullfights for example and uh and other countries, even if it's illegal, may have dog fighting or, or cockfighting as a sport. Um, but yes, we don't allow that. We don't do that openly in um, anyway in many countries of the world. But really, what we've done, I think, is we've we've hidden a lot of the animal suffering. We've put it into factory farms. We've put it into laboratories, um, and the the public generally doesn't see it unless somebody goes in undercover and takes a video. And shows the world what's going on, uh, and when we think about that, we're not really all that better. Um, you know, given given the alternatives we have, given that we don't need to do this to animals to survive, you could even say that we're worse. You know, you could say, well, the Romans had to grind grind their corn into flour um, in order to live, and uh, they didn't really have alternatives. They didn't have electricity to do that or other forms of, of power, um, so they had to do that, um, and and yet, you know, we, we don't have to eat animals. We don't have to have the products of factory-farmed animals. It doesn't help mm. us feed the planet at all. If anything, the reverse, it wastes food. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I think we're not really any better in respect of our treatment of animals. And, you know, you could go through other areas and there would be some mm. things in which we're somewhat better and other things in which we're not.
2: I, I wonder if we are getting closer to a tipping point on this animal issue. Uh, And I like to think in parallels, just so it's easy for me to understand and an existing schema that I understand. Uh, I think it was a professor out of Cornell, Robert Frank. He was on the podcast recently. And I think in his book, he was talking about, you know, when they created the motor vehicle, it was solving a problem and it was revolutionary. And no one really cared about carbon emissions then. But now we've kind of forgot about the basic thing that it's doing for us. And it's part of our everyday life. Now we're actually thinking of the byproduct of that. And I wonder if it is the same type of parallel with the factory farming. Like no one cared, I don't know, 50 years ago that there was factory farms because it was giving us what we need. But now we've moved to this point where it's like, well, hang on, this isn't right. And there can be another way.
1: Well, I think that's, you know, I I, I know Robert, Robert Frank's work, and I'm, yeah, I think he's, he's certainly right about the uh, the automobile, that uh, we have to find better ways, and we are starting to find better ways for doing that, um, and it's definitely true that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that we ever needed factory farming, really, but um, certainly people believe they did, and I would say it's something that developed because of the laws of the marketplace, uh, and if people were going to look for the cheapest chicken or the cheapest pork in the supermarket, then the factory farmer was going to win because they can produce more cheaply than the others. But um, in terms of really needing these products uh, or of producing food to feed the world, factory farming was, was never the answer to that.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good segue because there is a a few listener questions that touch on this uh, within our modern economy. So, are you right to get into some some questions, Peter?
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to take questions that your listeners have asked. All right. Well, the first question, and
2: before I ask it or get you to answer it, um, the reason I reached out to Peter was there was some chatter in the Facebook group about uh, someone asking a question about they purchased an investment property and they were getting negative comments around this. And then it it moved into this thing that a question is that is owning an investment property unethical. But I think what we probably need to understand first, Peter, is maybe a, a couple of um, thoughts about ethics 101. How do we establish our own ethics and I guess Principles or, you know, guiding lights, or whatever it is in our own lives, because what's ethical to me might not be ethical to my neighbor.
1: Yes, that's true. Um, people do have different ethical standards and they have them often from their childhood or their family background, sometimes their religious beliefs, sometimes people just think differently about these things. Um, But I do think that there are, you know, if you go up in a way to the more basic level, you get a fair amount of agreement. I'm not saying you get total agreement, but I think we we all agree that um, making people, and I would include animals too, so I would say sentient beings, um, making them suffer for no reason is a bad thing. Um, And conversely, making them better off improving their well-being, making them happier, is a good thing. Um, and that's, I think, a kind of a, a, a common currency that any defensible moral view will have. Um, it may put limits on that. It may say, well, you mustn't violate certain rights or you mustn't break certain moral rules to do that. But but they will say, um, if you're not violating rights or breaking moral rules, then you uh, Yes, you should relieve suffering where you can. It's better that fewer people suffer. It's better that the people be happier. So uh, I think that this is a a good starting point. And and for me, in fact, I I don't think that there are moral rules that are absolute. I think it's useful to have moral rules as a kind of general guide to what's the right thing to do. But um, I don't think any of them are absolute. Ultimately, I think they all depend on uh, do they conduce to improving the well-being of all sentient beings, or not, um, and so those are the rules that I would embrace, and that I would look to as a guide when you come up against an ethical question that you know you haven't thought about much before. Then I would say, well, what will produce the best consequences for all of those affected by my action, uh, and that's the way to go. Mm,
2: mm. So, to be blunt is owning an investment property unethical?
1: Well, if you ask a question like that, I I think there's a distinction that needs to be drawn as to how you're looking at this. Um, And it's a question that's, you know, I I often get asked about money. Uh, For example, I took part in a debate at the Oxford Union um, before the COVID thing um, about, is it ethical, can it be ethical to be a billionaire? Um, So, you know, if you say... Would there be an ideal system in which people didn't own investment properties or didn't own investment properties uh, while there are other people who are homeless, can't find somewhere to live? Um, Then the answer might be, you know, yes, we can imagine an ideal system. But the second question is, given the world we're living in now and giving my inability to change that system, at least in the foreseeable future, What is the right thing to do? So uh, if the question about is it ethical to own an investment property is asked by somebody living in the world now, then you have to look at the consequences of not owning an investment property and the consequences of, of nobody owning an investment property if that's really what you're thinking about. And the result of that would be, again, within the present system, that there was no rental properties available, or for people to rent. You know, the, very little anyway. Maybe sometimes people would go overseas for a while and rent their home, but but basically, the uh, large number of apartments we have that are still for rent. A lot of them, of course, are being strata titled and are owned by the apartment owners, uh, residents. But, but it's clearly good to have some rental properties. Um, people, there are a lot of people who can't afford to buy their home um, and somewhere to rent, not too expensive, is important. So um, I, I wouldn't say to ethical people who are thinking about ethics, you can't own a rental property. Um, I would say think about the kind of rental property you're owning, thinking about are you providing a service for people who can't afford to buy uh, a home to live in or maybe they're saving up for a home to live in um are you charging a reasonable rental that people can afford to buy um there are all those kinds of questions that uh, that can be raised about it uh mm. you know um, some people might say own a block of apartments but make some of them available to asylum seekers or people who um really couldn't get in and then they're providing a a service for them uh, as well as providing housing for people who aren't quite that badly off but um, but still couldn't afford to buy their own home. Do you think, because
2: I'd thought of this uh, question for some time and I was wondering when people um, get bogged down with this question that investment property, it's unethical, it's unethical, um, is it perhaps you know, and absolutely, I'm saying this to everybody listening with all respect and saying it under the guise of this topic, this interview with Peter. Like, Glenn James is so out of his depth. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just trying to facilitate a conversation. Do you think there's a confusion and you've picked the wrong fight because you're actually wanting to fight about, I disagree with capitalism and that system of money? Where there needs to be some more balance, uh because we know that extremes, peter, either end of the spectrum either issue extremes are really bad, so extreme capitalism like you just have to look at the states it's I believe it's a basket case, you know the way that you know healthcare works and freedom and democracy and pew 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 and all that stuff, where I think Australia is pretty well balanced, so I guess i'm saying. I guess leading into a a statement before I let you uh, answer, is there a role for us citizens to lobby governments and say, well, hey, we think that it is reasonable that one investment property is cool. The second one, there might be some higher taxes or something like that. I I don't know. I'm just throwing out words and thoughts.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're right that within the capitalist system that we live in and which, as I say, I don't see us overthrowing in the foreseeable future—not in my lifetime, anyway. A lot of listeners, but most listeners of this program are younger than I am. But um, so maybe uh, in your lifetime. Uh, but um, it's been around for a long time, and, and attempts to find a better system so far haven't really succeeded. Uh, so, given that, then what we should be doing is to try to develop some kind of safety net to catch people who are falling through the cracks. Um, And that's an idea that, again, has been around for a long time, uh, starting with things like the National Health Service in the UK and similar systems in Europe, uh, which began after the Second World War. Uh, And those are important. Um, Those are important ways of of catching people who would otherwise be in trouble. And you're right, um, healthcare in the US is still a mess. despite Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, which which helped and which hopefully Biden will find ways of bolstering and strengthening, but it definitely is still a mess. We're much better off with the system we have in Australia, um, although that's still far from perfect and um, you know, needs, needs funds to really do its job well. But... Uh, it's, yeah, I'm I'm much happier with that than I am with comparable systems in the US. And, you know, there are things about public housing as well, which we need to do to, to help people. So there are lots of things like that. But um, I think those are, those are the issues where we ought to be concerned citizens and we ought to be pushing our government to do more. And uh, I don't think the solution is to say it's unethical to own an investment property. Uh, it's rather a matter of saying what role does this play in in providing housing for people and can I do it well and can I do it so it has social benefits?
2: Yeah, and I guess in a simplistic way tying it into uh, giving and generosity, again, if we go back to this idea of this spectrum thing where, you know, if we're building wealth for the absolute selfish wrong reason that I need to amass wealth as an individual. I need to be successful. I need to have more for me, 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 me. It goes to intent and that's just fraught with danger. And I I feel sad for somebody who wants to just amass wealth as their own security and not give money away and not be generous. And I'm not talking about people on struggle street and trying to get a leg up. I'm talking about people that have good paying jobs that uh, might be looking to invest next. I believe there's a strong argument to slow your investing down and to be a more generous person.
1: I think there is a strong argument to do that. And it's um, both an ethical argument and an argument in terms of your own satisfaction and uh, fulfillment with life. Because I think there's there's lots of evidence to show that people who are just thinking about me, 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 and, and accumulating wealth for its for for themselves um, don't end up being very satisfied that's the kind of a treadmill that you get on and you always want more and uh, you know you're not very likely to be the richest person on the wor- in the world but until you are you'll always be thinking well i'm not that well off because look at Bezos or somebody like that they've got a lot more than i have so um so that's not a race you want to get into what you want to do is say um if i have the ability to make money then i want to do something worthwhile with that. I want to feel that I've contributed to society uh, and to making the world a better place. And there are lots of opportunities for doing that. Um, I think we talked last time I was on your uh, podcast about The Life You Can Save, uh, an organisation I founded which uh, provides a list of some of the most effective charities helping people in extreme poverty. Um, and that's that's worth going to thelifeyoucansave.org.au and um, seeing... Seeing what's there and uh, looking at some of those charities, and and uh, you know, I know a lot of people who find that that's added to their lives. That you know, they have a little bit less money to spend, but they have a lot more sense of meaning and fulfilment.
2: Yeah, and I think one analogy that really stuck with me was, uh, I think it was from Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, where you know, to get in the NBA or the NBL or elite basketball if you're over six foot and a really good basketball player, an extra inch or an extra two inches or whatever the measurement is, it doesn't really matter because you're there. And I think with our own money and our own personal life, whatever that measurement is for you, whether it is you're comfortable with a house, you're investing for the future and you are, quote unquote, there, it doesn't actually matter that much to accrue more wealth for yourself. So- it's just an encouragement for everybody to maybe slow down and look at your intent with your own money once you're at that threshold of that you can provide for yourself and your your own family. Cody Glenn asks, is it ethical to minimize tax purely for personal gain? And I kind of wrote a, a question next to this. You know, does legal always mean ethical?
1: Yeah, and the answer to that is is clearly no. Um there are some things that are that are legal that are not ethical. Um, I'm sure many people can think of examples of that. But you know, one example that I think of is is if you are really wealthy um, and you're not doing anything with your wealth to either help others or um, make the planet uh, more secure. You know, reduce climate change, uh, all of these other things that you could be doing. Um, that's perfectly legal, but I don't think it's ethical. I think we do have a responsibility as people who are comfortably off to to help others. Um, mm. Now, in terms of minimising uh, uh, tax, I think that we should be contributing to the community, the community, the government needs revenues to do the things we, that we all make use of. It, um, it builds roads, it provides public transport, it provides education for our children, provides, as we were just saying, um, a, a national health service. Um, so I think we should be willing to put in our fair share of that. We shouldn't think of the money that we pay in taxes as wasted. We should think of it as our contribution to having a community that functions well. And uh, that's, you know, it's really important to live in a society like that, I think. Uh, We're we're lucky in Australia. We do live in a community that functions reasonably well. Mm. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this and
2: Peter will answer more of your questions. I don't know how he is with theology or praxis, but a good chunk of young people receive wages far lower than what they need. This often means having no choice but to participate in unethical things like factory farming or fast fashion. How do you balance a conscience with wage stagnation? Uh, And he's really excited to hear this as well. And he says, hi. (laughs)
1: Hi. um, You know... Do people on low wages really need to participate in factory farming? Um, I'd, I'd question that. Uh, you know, yes, factory farming produces cheap animal products, but, um, you know, plant-based products can be very cheap too, and I don't mean the ones that you go in your supermarket and the vegan cabinets that exist now and, uh, you know, those manufactured products, they're not so cheap. but um, If you buy whole grains and uh, pulses like lentils and beans and so on and you cook them up, um, like, you know, say the the classic Indian dish dal, which is a a lentil curry, um, is very tasty. Uh, You can make it in large quantities quite easily and freezes very well, so it's not like you have to keep cooking. Um, And it's a very inexpensive and nutritious and balanced meal to have uh, dal with rice. Indians have been living on that for a long time. Uh, so, I don't think you do actually need to support uh, the factory farm products. Um, and I would say that you know I know people who've lived on very little um, and who've still managed to donate to effective charities. In fact, I had a letter or an uh, email a while ago from someone in Brazil I, I've been corresponding with for a while, um, and he's been giving to uh, effective charities. He recently told me that he had to move because the was living in a room I think the building was being demolished or something um but he could pack up all his belongings in a backpack and carry his guitar in his hand um so he's clearly not a wealthy person uh and uh yet he was still giving to effective charities Mm, mm. A, a
2: similar question Olivia Grace says I'd love to hear his thoughts on how to be an ethical consumer in our modern economy uh so like the purchasing clothes eating meat uh and particularly around this, especially when the supply chains aren't super clear, uh, what do we need to do to ensure we'll, we are making ethical choices?
1: Yes, it's it's quite complicated, as you uh, were saying, to to find out where everything comes from. As I've already said, I think it's, it's important to avoid factory farm products because I think they are both miserable for the animals and bad for the planet. Uh, and it's better to move to a plant-based diet, uh, and there are lots of things that you can do and lots of information online about how to do that. Now, you could say, you know, okay, but where, where do the lentils and rice or whatever else it is that I'm eating come from? Generally, you know, I think if, if they're grown here, I don't think there's a problem, and I also don't really think, despite the transport, it's bad to buy some of these things from other countries, so if you get your uh, your rice from Bangladesh, for example, um, it's it's come on a ship. It's not been flown over. So the the fuel costs of uh, ship is very low, and the impact on climate change in that way is very small. Uh, and you are contributing to the development of an industry in Bangladesh, which the country certainly needs. Um, it's actually one of the one of the countries that used to be very poor and is doing somewhat better now but it is doing better because it's built up some exports Um, and that's true of uh, clothing industry as well conditions may not be ideal but um, i still think it's worth buying products that are made by people who really need that work Uh, so uh, those are the sorts of things to uh, to look out for Uh, if you do have a a bit of gardening or borrow some land for someone, sometimes there are community allotments um, and you can grow a few veggies of your own, well, that's both a rewarding thing to do in itself, gets you outdoors, gets a bit of physical exercise, and of course then you know exactly uh, where your Mm. food has come from and how it was grown, so I've done that a little bit from time to time when the circumstances were around and I've always enjoyed it, but I've never actually managed to be self-sufficient in that way. And I don't think that's something you ought to aim at because as I say, there are plenty of other products around that you can get. Yeah.
2: And I think it's important that, you know, if you do want to have intent to change your lifestyle, uh, because me being a podcaster, I've talked to a lot of fascinating people, uh, including you, Peter. And for me, it wasn't about overnight snap making a change. So, it was like, I maybe only have- you know, I'm I'm evil, Peter, but, um, you know, I might ha- only have a small piece of steak once a week. Like I, I had a small, you know, 125 gram uh, piece of lean steak last night instead of having maybe, you know, red meat four times a week. So, it's more of this I'm really cutting down and trying to be conscious and then looking for other replacements like maybe stir fries with chickpeas or cashew nuts. So, I, I would like to get to the point where I'm possibly vegetarian or uh, very, I don't know, intentional with my food. So, it's not this change overnight, is it, Peter?
1: Uh, No, not necessarily. um, You're what is now called a reducitarian um, or sometimes flexitarian. Um, So, yeah, you're not uh, purely plant-based, but you're reducing your meat consumption, um, and that's good for the planet, good for you, good for animals. Uh, And uh so yeah i think that's a a welcome movement and uh you know if, if if more people would cut down their meat consumption and uh only have you know once or twice a week that would be great um and as you say the stir fries and other things can provide a good meal um i'd add tofu to the list of things that you're eating i think um you know a lot of people say our oh, tofu has no flavor but uh, you know th- there are things you do with it you you put it in the stir fry you fry a little bit in a bit of oil first to crispen it up um, then you put some uh, soy or if you like spicy food you put some spicy you know chili bean chili oil or something on it um, and it goes really well as part of the stir fry
2: I'm I'm kind of gritting because I didn't think we'd get to the point where we're doing the cooking with Peter segment.
1: But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's <laughs> important because, you know, people want want to have a diet that's that's interesting and enjoyable and uh, so on. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm definitely not a person who just says, you know, you should just eat one thing um, because that's the best, you know, plan.
2: From a practical point of view on this, you know, reducetarian or whatever I'm, becoming. Like for me, the trainers left the station. Amen. You know what I mean? Like it, there's, there is movement at the station, but even like ordering pizzas now, I only have vegetarian pizzas because mm. they actually, there's more flavor. I don't know. Let's just try that everyone. Try vegetarian pizzas.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's more variety. You know, there used to just be the the, the, the margarita or there was the mushroom um, or maybe there's a the vegetarian, but now there are ones that have uh, pumpkin and kale on them or they have potatoes on them. Uh, but uh, there's, a, there's a lot more around and that's really good.
2: Yeah. Uh, TC asks, is it ethical to care more about yourself and your family than others?
1: Well, I would say it's it's pretty much inevitable unless you're a saint um, and you can see that halo shining brightly above your head. Um, then, if you uh, if you have a family, you're, uh, you know, and you haven't had huge rows with them all, which I hope you haven't, um, mm-hmm. then it's more or less inevitable that you're going to care more about them, and you'll have some close friends that you care more about. So, you know, is it ethical? Well. Um, I don't think there's anything really wrong with it. The question is what you do with that. And and if you get to the point where all of your generosity is directed towards your family who, you know, let's say you're, you're Australian and you're, you and your family are reasonably comfortably off, then I think that's getting to the point where it's infringing on ethics because you're not leaving anything for the people who are through no fault of their own uh, much worse off and where... Your generosity could make a much bigger difference to their lives than it can to your own family. So um, you know, yes, care more for your family, do more for your family. I think we we have to accept that that's uh, that's something that that we all do. Uh, that we're, if you like, we're bound to do, given given the way that we've evolved. That uh, you know, we, we're only here because our parents cared for us and their parents cared for them and so on. Um, so, uh, I think we need, we need to accept that, but we need to put limits on it and think about the strangers that we don't see and don't know as individuals.
2: Do you think, you know, some of these questions about looking after others and accruing and amassing wealth just for yourself, it speaks to this um, having idols in your life that can be dangerous?
1: Uh, yes. If if what you're thinking of is, you know, I want to be like this person who's just made huge amounts of money from whatever it is, you know, cryptocurrencies or something or other, and I'm jealous that I didn't get into Bitcoin, you know, five years ago, you know, that's that's going to burn you up. I don't think you, you, you want to be thinking that way. I think you want to be mm-hmm. thinking about um, the impact that you're having on the world. Um, and if you're going to have models to follow, then it should be the people who've been doing a lot for a lot for the world and a lot for others.
2: Um, Jeremy Kane asks, "I'd like to hear his opinion on uh, the UBI, which is the Universal Basic Income. If that's a new thing for people listening, or some sort of no strings attached basic needs support."
1: Yes. Uh, so we were talking earlier about capitalism and about the fact that capitalism needs a safety net for the people who fall through the cracks. Um, and a UBI is just that. Um, it's providing people with some income so that uh, they're going to manage to get through at a rather modest level. And uh, in that way, it's remedying some of the deficiencies of capitalism. Now, um, of course, people are going to say, well, what are they going to do with it? You know, are they going to use it on alcohol or gambling or drugs or, or whatever? Uh, and then just not work, and the whole economy will collapse because people will not be productive anymore. So, uh, we, you know, that's a factual question that we need to find answers to. But there are studies and pilots that have already been run in various places, and they seem to suggest that uh, people don't stop working just because they get um, a modest universal basic income. They, in fact, continue to work, some of them actually. Uh, can be more successful and can use that to lift themselves out of poverty altogether. Uh, so I think that these are things that are, are worth trying and uh, worth observing where they have been tried. Uh, and it, there are different ones going on in, in different countries. Some of them have gone on in affluent countries. Um, you know, a region of Finland tried it a while ago. Um, but also there's an organization... Uh, in fact, one of the organisations recommended by the Life You Can Save uh, is called Give Directly, and it does exactly what that name suggests. It goes to people in very poor rural areas of East Africa, of of Kenya mainly, um, and it gives them. I think, if I remember rightly, it's eight dollars a month, or maybe it's twelve dollars a month. Anyway, it's something around that. And, and you know, we would say, well, that's completely irrelevant. What's you know, getting that a month going to do? But for people whose uh, annual income is um, you know maybe seven hundred dollars, uh, an extra eight or twelve dollars a month um, does make a difference, and it gives them some kind of security. And and in fact, the studies have shown that they don't. Uh, waste it all on on gambling or alcohol or things of that sort. That um, most of the people do use it, and and some of them actually use it to start small businesses, uh, to get a boost, uh, and to work their way out of poverty.
2: I want to ask you a question. You you made a quote, and I'm just looking on the it's on the Think Inc uh, website uh, where you can buy the tickets. What one generation finds ridiculous, the next accepts and the third shudders when it looks back on what the first did. Okay. Do you think in this current culture of, you know, we'll call it the woke culture and people getting cancelled and all that stuff. Do you think we're at a point where we're trying to preempt things? And I don't know. I, I just don't know if it's, it's a fabulous quote that, you know, we look back that in the, you no know, 1901, that was the norm, and then the next generation, that wasn't, and then we look back and it was just all ridiculous. Do you have any comments on that quote and then just what we're seeing at the moment?
1: Uh Yeah, I should say that the quote is not original to me, at least, you know, the basic idea has been around for a while, I think. John Stuart Mill said something like that. The 19th century yeah. utilitarian philosopher and and others have certainly said it too. But you know we, we see it and we've seen it in our in our own lifetimes. You know certainly if you've lived as as long as I've had, you've seen the idea when uh, you know, people who had a same sex orientation couldn't talk about it. Uh, basically, they were all in the closet. It was still a criminal offence to um, have gay sex. Uh, and we've seen, you know, that, which was just the way things were, um, completely swung around, not only the point where it's not criminal, but to the point where, where uh, same sex people can get married. So that's been a, a tremendous success, I think, in, in change of consciousness. Um, and some of the issues that we've talked about, like the treatment of animals, um, you know, I've certainly seen when when I wrote Animal Liberation, which was first published in 1975, um, there was quite a bit of ridicule that greeted that. I can uh, remember being on a, a talk show with um, there was a guy called Don Lane who ran talk shows in in Melbourne, um, and he kind of kind of basically ridiculed it. He, I, I think he thought when I was coming on the show, I was going to talk about not being cruel to our dogs and cats. And when he realized that I was actually talking about the animals that he was eating, um, he just couldn't really believe this and couldn't take it seriously. Um, But of course, as you were saying, a lot of people do take it seriously now. And we haven't quite got to the level where we look back and and shudder. But I do think that uh, factory farms and the way we're treating animals right now is something that our grandchildren may well look back on and say, how could people have ever done that and thought that that was okay?"
2: Mm. Yeah, it's just fascinating because you know, being a podcaster, like I, I might make a a benign joke that's acceptable today that isn't rude to anyone, that isn't you know, racist, homophobic, any of that stuff. But I'll probably get cancelled in twenty years. Like it's just, it's fascinating to see all this stuff unfold.
1: Yeah, it's it is interesting, and in fact, you can see it very well if you look at old movies. You know, I am uh, with the. Uh, uh, some of our grandkids. Um, I watched the film movie Blazing Saddles, which um, I thought was one of the funniest movies ever made. Um, but when you read it, when you watch it now, you realise, oh, this is really quite politically incorrect um, in in some of the jokes that it makes. Um, yeah. But look, I think we ought to we ought to um, you know realise that, and we shouldn't hide these things. People have changed. Um, in many respects we've changed for the better in some of these things. Some of these things were offensive, tasteless, sexist, homophobic, racist. But I don't think we should not look at anything from the past. And, and I don't really hold with this idea of uh, you know renaming buildings. So there's there was a great 18th century philosopher called David Hume, who um, I admire in many respects. But um, he did. Uh, it seems from correspondence, in, uh, invest in a plantation that owned slaves or supported that in uh, the West Indies. Um, you know, that's obviously a terrible thing to do. And um, uh, but so uh, there was a, a Hume building in Edinburgh because he was a Scottish philosopher, uh, where the, they took his name off. I I think it would be much better to say, um, you know, this was a great thinker of his time, but he was limited by his times in in his attitude to uh, slavery. And that's something that we regret, but uh, you
2: know,
1: we, we, we should recognise where we've come from and, and how we've progressed, um, but not judge everybody by the standards of 2021. Mm. One final question, um,
2: and I really appreciate your time today. And it, it might be personal and tell me to get stuffed if you like, but over your own life, like have there been ways that you've managed and invested your own money or things that you've done just in relation to just personal finance uh, on a personal level? Like um, have you been a, a big investor yourself to accrue wealth so maybe one day that you can put down the microphone and or put down the lectern and not teach? Um, like what have you done in your own personal life?
1: Yeah. Um, well, let me just say I don't really teach at this stage because I need the money um, uh, of course there, there are good things that I can do with the money and that helps um, but I f- do find teaching a rewarding activity in itself and uh, but yes you know um, I have in invested um, I have investments for example with uh, Australian Ethical um, which uh, is a, a fund that has ethical filters for um, the things that it invest in um, and as well it does quite well the money the money grows so um, I think that's a that's a good way of investing Mm, love it
2: well Peter Singer thank you so much for your time Uh, you can find the link to the golden ass uh, in the show notes Uh, it will be a fascinating entertaining read for all of you and you can see Peter live in Australia and New Zealand in August Uh, tickets still available so Peter Singer thank you so much for your time
1: today Thanks, Glenn. It's been really good talking to you again. We acknowledge the dark
0: and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing
2: slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out 821.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you are unsure about which charity you can support,
1: head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au.